0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at relationships between governments and private sector suppliers. Why do they exist? What forms do they take? And how well do they work? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Now, no one would claim that the subject of contracts between governments and private sector suppliers is all that sexy, but the last two years of the COVID crisis have certainly revealed its importance. In the earliest weeks of the pandemic, back in 2020, governments around the world scrambled to secure enough PPE, hospital ventilators and COVID tests. Then there was the race to buy up vaccines. In recent weeks, shortages of testing kits have been back in the headlines. Here in the UK, vaccine purchasing is held up as exemplary, while contracting for PPE remains mired in allegations of cronyism. But controversies over government contracting are far from new. Debates about the merits or otherwise of the contracting out of public services and of public-private partnerships have been running for decades. And scandals over nepotism and revolving doors between the public and private sectors have been familiar for a lot longer than that. On the other hand, of course, many would say that close cooperation between governments and private sector suppliers has brought innumerable benefits. Well, in this, our first episode of 2022, we thought it was time to take a good look at such cooperation. And to do so, I'm delighted to be joined by two fantastic experts. Dr. Eleanor Woodhouse is lecturer in public policy in the UCL Department of Political Science and an expert in, among other things, public-private partnerships. In 2021, she published with colleagues a book with Cambridge University Press called Partnership Communities, public-private partnerships, and non-market infrastructure development around the world and Alice Moore is a PhD student in the UCL Department of Political Science. Her research investigates the role of trust and relationships in the delivery of outsourced public services and the effects on competition for public contracts and on the quality of the services provided. She's also a research officer at the Centre for Analysis of Risk and Regulation at the London School of Economics. Ellie and Alice, welcome to you both to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's start with, I guess, the most fundamental question here. why do governments actually invite private sector companies to provide public services, public infrastructure in the first place? Alice, do you want to do you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, thanks Alan. So I think the, the trend towards inviting private sector suppliers to get involved in, in public services and public infrastructure kind of began in the 1980s and 90s. Um, and it was really stimulated by uh, renewed interest in free market economics and particularly the power of competition to produce good public services and, and positive results overall. So, so really, I think competition is 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 one of the key rationales for involving the private sector in public services. There's a criticism at this time of uh, government organisations that are unresponsive to citizens, to public interest. Um, and this is seen um, as a result of the fact that there's no competition in the public sector. Um, so this is probably one of the founding rationales for inviting private sector companies um, into, into this arena. Um, there are other... Uh, Arguments as well, such as accessing expertise um, that the government doesn't have, perhaps uh, quickly responding, as we've seen during the pandemic, uh, to resourcing issues, you know, the public sector can't necessarily quickly mobilise, so inviting the private sector can help, help them kind of respond to that and also some people argue that the the profit motive will produce kind of higher performance so the fact that people in private sector companies have a stake in in the profits and and, and the outcomes in contrast to public organizations this will lead, lead them to kind of perform better. So those are the kind of I would say stated aims of contracting and the reason the, the reasons that um, the private sector got involved in government services in the first place.
0: That's very helpful, Alice. Thank you. Uh, Ali, would you add anything to that?
2: Yes, I guess quickly, I think Alice did a great job in summarising why the private sector is brought in. I guess I could maybe quickly point to one of the kind of most important non-stated reasons um, for using private investment and private partners as part of delivering um, infrastructure. Um, And that is precisely the fact that um, one of the kind of biggest attractions from the point of view of the government is that public-private partnerships, that type of money, um, is not classified as public debt, but is classified as private debt. Which means from the incumbent government's point of view, it's very appealing because essentially you can deliver infrastructure or public services um, to your citizenry without that counting as part of your sovereign debt. Um, which is um, can be a very attractive option for governments of all types, but particularly if you're facing um, fiscal constraints, for example. So yeah, I just wanted to quickly add that as I think that's quite a, a fundamental um, issue.
0: So I guess that often leads to a concern that that kind of contracting, the public-private partnerships, and we'll get on to in, in more detail in just a moment to what that is, but that, that can be a kind of symptom of governmental short-termism, that it's a way by, through which governments can get stuff in the short term while they're in power and then paying for it will happen down the line when some other government is in power is that a fair criticism do you think
2: i think that is a fair criticism um, and it's definitely something that governments can be accused of having done because essentially you can start procuring for various types of infrastructure and then when further down the line maybe cost overruns start occurring or delays it's then out of your hands potentially and in the hands of the next um, government that's come through and um, so i think that is a fair criticism
1: yeah, just to jump in on that quickly. Um, I think we've seen the same thing happening in the kind of world of traditional contracting. So there, there isn't necessarily the same financing structure, but a services simply outsource the private sector. And often that comes with a short term cost saving. So the private sector quote that they can do it much, much more cheaply than the public sector. But what what we're starting to see and you know we've had um in the UK for instance um around 30 years now of kind of a, quite a lot a lot of public sector contracting is over time other costs start to kind of creep in, um, particularly monitoring costs. So often the the in-house team is compared directly with the contractor. But what actually ends up happening is you need to keep um, a substantial portion of resource in-house in order to just monitor that the contractor is doing what they say they're going to do. Um, And often governments have, have not been particularly good at doing that um, or good at attracting the kind of skills needed to manage these kind of big contracts. And the people and the skills required to do that are, are sometimes quite expensive. So you see kind of an initial cost saving, but over the kind of decades, um, the the monitoring and ancillary costs start to mount up quite a lot.
0: Mm, very interesting. Um, we're already talking here about various different kinds of contracts, different sorts of relationships between government and suppliers, um, Ellie, Can you just help us understand these? So you focus particularly on public-private partnerships, PPPs. What are these and how do they differ from other kinds of contractual arrangements?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so essentially, as we have already touched upon, public-private partnerships are a mechanism um, for the government to be able to procure and implement um, public infrastructure or services um, using the res- resources and expertise of the private sector. So they essentially collect um, the financing, construction, um, and operation of assets into these long-term um, contractual arrangements, which in theory brings with it um, efficiency gains, as we've just been talking about. Um, so I think to fix ideas, a very simple example is to think about a toll bridge. Um, so the idea is that if you contract out to the same consortium this toll bridge, they are like they are likely to construct it better, knowing that they're then going to be operating the toll bridge in the future. So they would want to build a good bridge that isn't going to have problems and is going to cost them as little as possible when they're then running it later. So the idea is that you get these um, efficiencies coming through bundling is what it's called um, technically um, in the contractual um. of way of thinking about things. Um, And there are multiple different forms that these contracts can take. Um, So in um, the book that you mentioned at the beginning, Alan, we look across the globe at what these types of contracts look like. Um, And we see that the most popular type of PPP is what's called a build-own-operate, which is um, a particular type of contract that's often used for water treatment or power plants, because essentially uh, a given consortium builds it, then has the the ownership rights as well, as well as operating it. Whereas you'd see different flavors of these contracts used for different types of infrastructure, for example, build own transfer, for, for, or there are multiple different types of contracts that I won't go into because it's there are many of them and they're maybe not that interesting. Um, but essentially, yeah, the they're, they're, the reason they're interesting is because they these broad this umbrella of public private partnerships rely on private finance and involve and um, the private sector assuming some of the risk for delivering public goods and services. That's the kind of key takeaway.
0: OK, great. And Alice, you work on other kinds of arrangements. What what other sorts of arrangements should we be aware of in our discussion here?
1: Yeah. So there there are kind of uh, a myriad of different kind of flavours of contracting. But um, I'm just going to touch on kind of three new styles that I think are quite important, um, some of which have been relevant in the in the COVID pandemic pandemic. Um, so of course, um, the the kind of contracting that I described at the beginning is just a simple simple contract where you um, where the government pays an external provider to provide a service on its behalf.. Um, so that's kind of the basic type, um, but more recently we're seeing kind of different forms of contracts, such as framework agreements. So these are contracts where a provider will bid for a con- for the for the opportunity to provide future contracts. So basically, what they're doing is going through all the kind of rigmarole and um, procedures to to be awarded a contract, so that they can be um, the provider of any particular contractual need. For a public organisation in the in the future. And this is sort of a way to circumvent some of the more onerous uh, procurement procedures that the EU puts in place. So you only have to go through them once. And then every time a government organisation or, or, for example, um, a local authority needs that partic- particular service, they can just kind of call it off from the selection of of providers. So those are quite frequently used um, and are slightly different to traditional contracting. Another kind of development that we've seen is um, an increase in subcontracting. And this has been particularly come to light, particularly in the the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So this is where the government will contract with one provider, but that provider will actually then subcontract. So they will then have providers themselves um, that sort of do the work for them um, and a lot of the ppe sourcing contracts were set up this way so the government was not necessarily engaging somebody to supply ppe to them directly but they were engaging someone to go out and hunt for and find all the different ppe that they they could um, and this is another way that the government could kind of transfer risk onto um uh, onto a provider uh, because because they're they're taking on the kind of risk of 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 supplying the contract when perhaps you know supply is is quite um uncertain as we as, we, as we've seen recently but this kind of su- subcontracting can also have have pitfalls and we saw this with the collapse of carillion um the fact that a lot of their contracts were heavily subcontracted led to really um uh, Kind of really increased the impact that that collapse had because lots of downstream suppliers then didn't get paid and there was a real impact on um, kind of job losses and 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 things like that, um, and then just finally the kind of contracts that that I look at in my research um, something called relational contracts. This is a kind of new new. Style of contracting, say, where instead of writing out every everything that possibly could kind of happen or go wrong or um, needs needs to be uh, determined in 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 writing, they're a lot a lot more open, and this allows you to deal with situations where for example the service or the task to be done is very difficult to describe or you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty so you might not know what uh, what you'll need you know 6 months from now something like that and what people have started to do what organizations have started to do is to rather than writing reams and reams and reams of of, of documents that will never be read and are very unenforceable is to do a more bare bones contract and then continually negotiate. Um, and these have been very popular in the US. Uh, the legal environment there uh, means that it's easier for for public organisations in the US to draw these up. But you're just starting. We're just starting to see them um, in. In Europe, and particularly the UK. And um, I think kind of post Brexit, there's there might be we might start seeing more of um, this in the UK as the UK kind of reforms its procurement environment. So um, those are maybe something to look out for. And we can talk a bit more about the, the pitfalls of those perhaps later on in the episode. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And just listening to both of you, it's striking the range of examples that you're providing. I mean, there's a huge range of different kinds of services that are provided in these ways, different sorts of infrastructure projects. So we're talking um, uh, transport infrastructure, energy infrastructure, maintenance of all sorts of different things, provision of all sorts of different kinds of services. I mean, in a sense, I I guess the question might be what isn't uh, subject to this kind of contracting provision and and partnership between uh, public and private sector bodies rather than what is. Do do we have any sense, Ellie, do you want to go for this? Do you have any sense of what, what, what the boundaries are here?
2: Yeah. So for PPPs, it's often for large scale infrastructure. So I guess one kind of helpful dimension might be thinking about size. So if you're talking about, as I mentioned before, like water plants or energy plants, um, they're often delivered through PPPs, whereas for kind of more smaller scale or simpler, I guess, tasks. Like if as a government department, you need to buy some pencils um, you probably wouldn't use a PPP to do that. You just use a, a sort of simpler form of contracting out. Um, but yeah, so that's at least PPPs tend to be used for these large-scale infrastructure projects, so like roads, like I can bridges, solar or wind energy plants, um, schools, hospitals, all these um, types of projects, um, although that does vary um, across the globe. Um, again, in, in our book, we we look at this um, and you can see Across the globe, in fact, in like Europe, the the Americas, and Asia, um, wind and solar are the main sectors in which you see PPPs being used. But that does change across the globe. So if you look, for example, um, in Asia, coal energy and mass transit systems are still uh, the most kind of broadly provided through PPPs. Um, and in Africa, um, solar and hydro um, types of projects are provided using PPPs. So you do see how um, the kind of the the way that a country, what its economy looks like, its geography looks like, will affect the types of projects that PPPs are used for. But on the whole, I'd say large scale infrastructure is essentially what you see PPPs being used for.
0: Uh And Alice, presumably some of the other kinds of contracting that you've set out there are used more for uh, shorter term service provision, that kind of thing. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think um, we've definitely seen a big shift in what is what is acceptable to contract, kind um, of politically, um, and what what is potentially kind of up for contracting. Because the services that were initially targeted for contracting out were what we might call simple services, so uh, or technical services like cleaning and security. Although obviously there's you know there's lots of complexity and, and work that that needs to go in, but into that, but they were services that were already provided by pri- public uh, private sector companies, so. There were services that, um, such as cleaning, where there was already a market. People were already doing these uh, these things, like um, like security. There were already security companies, um, and they were relatively easy to define and measure. So it was relatively easy to set targets for these for these companies. Um, in the last, I would say, couple of decades, um, we've seen kind of contracting be- being extended into more. More complex services, but also services that kind of we would traditionally think of being as kind of core parts of government. So, a kind of really obvious example here is prisons, you know, the justice system, and. Um, as a result of that imprisoning somebody is is one of the core functions of any of any government Um, and yet here and um, in places like the US uh, we're seeing kind of privatized privatization and contracting in particular being extended into uh, into areas like prisons and this comes with a a myriad of problems because obviously um, the outcomes there are much more Complex uh, kind of more fuzzy, um, you know. For example, something like rehabilitation is quite difficult to is difficult to measure. And kind of some other examples of these these kind of areas are things like um, benefits assessment. So the work capability assessment that um, that takes part uh, that you have to go through if you're going to to claim um, employment support allowance. That part of now universal credit um, is actually outsourced. So. So you see, kind of increasingly private companies, you know, making decisions about how citizens are treated um, and and the kind of state services they can actually access, which I think is a really kind of important development and kind of interesting for, for questions about kind of what governments do and 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 how they how they do it.
0: Yes, definitely. Great. So we've got a lot of background material here. We've got a sense of what it is that we're talking about and uh, how things have developed over time, how these different arrangements are being used and so on. I guess all of that leads to maybe the most important question, which is what actually works, what works best, um, which is obviously a really broad question. Ellie, how, how do we even get our heads around what that question means in the first place?
2: Yeah. So it's a, it's a great question. Um, and in fact, there's a, a pretty heated debate in the scholarly literature about this. Um, so there is a very large literature that's focused on evaluating essentially whether sort of traditional procurement methods or PPPs perform better or worse. And this is usually in terms of um, time. So how long the time frame in which it takes you to deliver a public good um, and also cost. So how much is this costing um, the taxpayer and the government um, overall? um and essentially the kind of bottom line from all of this research rather unhelpfully is that there um isn't a huge difference or if there is it depends quite significantly from type of project to type of project from sector to sector and across um, different contexts, so from country to country or region to region, depending on the political system. Um, so, you know, theoretically, there are sort of conditions under which um, PPPs. So, I'm talking about PPPs, is this is what um, i focused on mostly. Um, make more sense and are more likely to be successful. And by successful, I again mean to be finished in t- like on time and to cost less or the same as traditional public procurement. And that's usually so. It kind of links into what Alice was talking about: links on the ex- links to the extent to which you can write a complete contract so the idea is that if the government has done this type of project numerous times in the past and it's relatively simple you can write quite a complete contract that means that you can allocate risk clearly between the public sector and the private companies, and therefore you can mitigate some of the negative effects that would come with um, renegotiating, for example. So it was very interesting to hear Alice talking about relational contracting, because in the PPP world, that can be extremely costly for the taxpayer and has led particularly, there are lots of studies from Latin America about this to very bad outcomes for the taxpayer um, because you don't want to see public private partners coming in and renegotiating, and therefore, kind of they give a great deal at the, begin, at the beginning of the process, and then this becomes increasingly more expensive. Um, so, in those types of situations where you have a clear idea of the type of um, project that you need to deliver, um, they can be effective. But the problem is, we are moving towards lots of different types of public services that are very complex. Like the, the world that we're living is is complex, we have pandemics technology, privacy, all kinds of things to navigate. And as that happens, it becomes difficult for contracting to kind of keep up. Um, So essentially, yeah, it's a a difficult question. And there, unfortunately, isn't really a clear answer, which I would argue, but maybe we can talk about this later, would would mean that you might want to exercise more caution in using PPPs, for example, given that their performance record is rather mixed. Um, And I'm happy to talk about that um, in a moment if you want to talk about where they are around the world, but I should let Alice jump in as well.
0: Well, just just before that, (laughs) I'm intrigued that um, the criteria that you've talked about there are finishing on time and uh, at lower cost than would have been the case otherwise. And I guess a lot of the concern that's often expressed about these sorts of arrangements is that quality is harmed. And Alice was talking about the kind of fuzzier, or harder to measure outputs and that, that kind of quality is missed um, from these sorts of arrangements. Do, do we have any evidence on that?
2: Um, so again, that's pretty... The issue is there it tends to be pretty difficult to measure. So unless you're looking at the exact same type of project across different countries, for example, or you could look within a particular section try and compare, it's very difficult. So again, in in the book that I mentioned, we create a measure of quality. and um, but because we're looking across the globe and comparatively, it's very difficult to have um a kind of a measure that you can be confident is going to be accurate for the multiple types given that as we've mentioned these types of procurement contracts cover a huge different range of goods and services and across across the globe and um, it's very difficult and um, to kind of pin that down um but in terms of yeah so the the literature that i'm kind of aware of is can either do that very well in a case study context but it's very difficult to do that comparatively um, i don't know if alice has thoughts on that but that's my Alan's really hit on uh, probably one one of the core problems for this uh, this area
1: of research, because um, you know all the things we've been talking about were, uh, about how these quality outcomes are difficult to measure, and of course if they're difficult to measure, they off- they usually don't show up in administrative data, because if if the government would were able to access and measure them, then we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. So um, the kind of holy grail for academic researchers in this area is is kind of trying to find um, uh, kind of measures of, of, of quality that that um that that can do, that can do this i i think it's definitely still a work in progress but there 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 are some people out there kind of doing quite 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 innovative work and i think the the case study method i think this is where kind of qualitative research um kind of comes into its own because it can of ex- examine that kind of thing on the in detail kind of on the ground
0: let's get onto some of the research that you have been able to do yes uh, so <laughs> uh, alan you've uh, investigated whether governments repeatedly going back to the same suppliers, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing? Um, what have you been able to find there?
1: So basically, I've, do- I've done this piece of research um, based on um, UK contracting data that's, that's kind of published through the through the EU. And what I'm interested, what was interested in is whether, whether, yes, the government kind of working with suppliers that it's already worked with has any kind of impact on future competition so my theory is that if if you're a you're a prospective competitor if you see that a contract is repeatedly being awarded to company X um, then you'll look at that and think mm, I might might not submit a bid this time I think my um, my efforts are better served by going for this other contract and of course these these processes are quite Kind of cumbersome and onerous for the for the for the companies you know it takes a lot of effort and work to kind of go through the process of bidding for a contract and so what I do is I i um, i identify in this data kind of relationships over time between government organizations and private companies and what I'm able to do is is track whether having awarded the contract repeatedly to um one supplier or possibly a small number of suppliers as contracts are often awarded to a couple of suppliers at the same time, then has any impact on competition in the future. Um, and what I find is that this does, but only in contracts where uh, quality criteria are involved in the contract award. So where contracts are awarded solely based on price, this, this doesn't happen, um, but where, where contracts are awarded on both price and quality, which I have to say is the, is the norm, usually there are some quality criteria for very good reasons, this kind of the strength of prior relationships, stronger prior relationships have a negative effect on future competition. Kind of, a, I use this finding to develop the argument that that basically w- what this is is that um, where public servants have some element of discretion in how they award the contract, awarding it frequently to to the same set of suppliers dissuades potential competitors from bidding for that contract. And this is really important because, as I said at the beginning, competition is one of the core rationales for doing this in the first place. So, you know, I'm kind of my what I'm working on now is is kind of taking that another step further and seeing what the effect on kind of end performance is. But I, even on its own, I think it's really significant that, that that this practice is is somehow is kind of undermining one of the one of the core rationales for for contracting and and so kind of. I use that to argue that it's kind of not enough to just rely on competition being out there. You know, of, of, often public contracts struggle with uncompetitive markets. And so public organisations and governments should really be looking at kind of other um, other rationales for contracting. You know, do they need to access expertise from the private sector? Is there some benefit to kind of learning about new ways of working, having kind of institutional diversity, these kind of other maybe more neglected rationales for for the practice, um, and and perhaps, you know, if there isn't, maybe we should be scaling back our use of use of this practice.
0: Ellie, do you want to pick up on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think. The the book that I mentioned previously kind of fits pretty well with what Alice um is working on. So we um there take a more kind of macro um look at this across the globe, and we're looking at um what we call partnership communities, which are essentially we're looking at, at networks. So how um private partners, those private partners involved in public-private partnerships um are connected between one another. And what we see um, is something very similar to what Alice um describes. So you would you would kind of want these um, networks of private partners to work to function like markets in a kind of ideal world, right? You want competition and people to be able to so that the the public can get the best um, contracts available. Um, but what we see is that over time, these um, the networks of um, of partners tend to become more um, concentrated. And this is particularly true in the UK, for example, we focus in on a comparison between the UK and the US, um, which is indicative on a kind of macro scale of the same types of dynamics that um, Alice is talking about. So that as um, these um, networks establish themselves into communities, you essentially see the same um, the same partners getting these types of projects essentially, and therefore getting a kind of greater market share, which is, um, Matching up with the rest of the literature, which argues that these types of big contracts often um, suffer from a lack of of competition. So you have few private partners or consortia able to deliver these types of um, of projects can become quite problematic um, in terms of thinking about who you know who kind of holds the power and is able to decide wh- you know which projects go ahead and under under what kind of terms. Um, and another strand of research that I look into is in all of this we haven't really spoken about um, voters and what mm. citizens think um, mm. about these um, these types these ways of contracting out, um, which I believe is is important. Um, and I have a couple of um, projects where I look at this. Um, so in one, I use um, a survey experiment of American citizens in this case, um, to essentially ask um, if they're sensitive to the way in which you deliver a public good or service. Um, And what I find is that they are, but when you introduce um, performance information, so telling them, giving them some information about how successful or not this, um, the delivery of this infrastructure was, and that then becomes, they don't care about that. What they care about is the performance, which makes a lot of sense. But what I do find, which I, I think is interesting, is that um, what we classify as more kind of highly politically knowledgeable citizens are more sensitive to private involvement in the delivery of public goods and services, um, which I think is, is really important Um, to, you know, Voters are aware of these these projects. They know that they're happening, and they do seem to have preferences for the way in which you deliver them. Um, and if, and in another um, project I have, I focus on the case of Colombia, where there have been some very high um, profile kind of disasters with PPPs, and we found we find there as well that um, essentially they don't always function as credit claiming opportunities, which is what the sort of distributive politics literature would expect. So you'd imagine that by sending, as a politician, I send a project to a given district and you would hope that, that would gain you votes, right? Like you're providing some infrastructure. Um, but what we find is that in these cases where there's been quite a negative association with PPPs, voters do react to that and they are less likely to vote for the incumbents, um, which I just, I think it's really important that we think about how, you know, what voters preferences are, and um, particularly as as we've sort of touched upon throughout the conversation, there are costs associating with, you're essentially kind of blurring the line, right, of accountability between who's delivering the public good, is it the government kind of writ large, or are there these private partners involved? And I think it's really important that we take that into consideration, particularly given, as I mentioned before, that and um, PPPs, in my case, do have quite a mixed performance record. So, you can't justify their use purely on kind of efficiency gain logics. So you also have to take into account, into account, um, in my opinion, um, the cost that they might have for democracy, um, yeah. for example, which is maybe a, a big statement, but I think it's really important yeah. to kind of think about these these types of questions.
0: Yeah and I guess it also gets to the point that you know the public m- might not be terribly concerned about the details of political process but they definitely don't want that process to be hijacked for private gain and I guess exactly. there's a real perception that sometimes these kinds of arrangements can be used by either by private gov- governments uh, sorry private companies or by ministers and officials in government precisely in order to extract private gain from the system which I suppose exactly. again going back to what I started with in uh, in my intro to this episode and some of the controversy over PPE contracts and so on at the early stages of the pandemic. That was exactly the kind of concern that was talked about there. Alice, do you have any final thoughts for us?
1: Yeah, I, I was just thinking um, based on what you said about, about PPEs. I think um, most of the time this is a subject that maybe goes under the radar a little bit. And, you know, um, you know, when I first started my research, I told people what uh, what I was going to do. And they said, oh, you're doing your PhD on bin collection. Great. You know, it really seems like a very <laughs> prosaic um, prosaic topic. But when it goes wrong and when it impacts, you know, when it impacts the taxpayer, you um, then, then it does become a hugely politically salient. Um, and I mean, it does touch on um, kind of one of the, one of the key relationships between citizens and the state because, you know, public services are how we all experience government in our lives. Um, and whether that's being delivered kind of directly by the government or by a, a private company that's doing it for profit, I think does have, a, does have a really big impact. And when things go wrong, that can become incredibly important to people and incredibly salient.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much to both of you. It's been really fascinating. It it isn't the most glamorous topic, but it's incredibly (laughs) important. And you have made the case for that very, very clearly. And and, uh, so thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for having us, Alan. Thank you. And if you'd like to read more, we'll put the details of Ellie's book in the show notes for this episode. It's called Partnership Communities, Public-Private Partnerships and Non-Market Infrastructure Development Around the World, written by Anthony Michael Bertelli, Eleanor Florence Woodhouse, Michele Castiglioni and Paolo Bellardinelli. And it was published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Alice's work is yet to appear in the public domain, but watch this space. Next week, we're looking at the impact of intermarriage on voting behavior in Africa. As ever, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.